You are now about to witness the strength of knowledge. This is Steve Dace. Raising a banner of bold colors, no pale pastels. People should not be afraid of their governments. Governments should be afraid of their people. Our rights are inherent and essential, derived from our maker. That is liberty, and liberty will reign in America. This is Steve Dace. And greetings. Happy Tuesday here on the Steve Day Show podcast edition powered by CRTV. My name is Steve Dace. Todd and Aaron are here with me as well. And we just wrapped up production for today's CRTV show. Let's give the audience a little taste of what's coming up today on CRTV. Todd, you're up. Well, uh, it's not exactly, not that it ever really uh, is, but sometimes the the humorous aspect of Aaron's intro is a bit more dialed up. This intro of his, um, it's not, it's not pleasant. Uh, from the leader of my church, um, and his sense that those who are deeply concerned about its leadership's role in high, uh, in hiding, uh, child predators, uh, we are somehow spawns of Satan. You know, where do you go from there, brother? I, where I, do you go from there? You know, we talked about this today on the TV show. I, I think that's a level of, at best, wicked indifference and at worst, malevolence. Though, to me, it, it's within those two <laughs> tent poles that I think the... And there are legitimate arguments. I, I want to make sure, and I think you would agree with me on In fact, I know you would. Our, Todd and I's ability to um, be friends and have these conversations without cutting each other on the, you know, on, the, uh, f- on the fields of Europe, okay, doesn't mean there are not substantive disagreements here, okay? We just both recognize that Jesus died for people, not a theology. Correct. Okay? But you'll notice- Say that again because it can come across as- tra- It's so- bedrock yes. true and important Jesus died for people not a theology I mean don't assume that if you're Catholic that when I give the evangel- evangelical view of things Todd's over here raising the roof he didn't come to church with me last Sunday <laughs> as disgusted as he is by all of this he still went to mass okay and if you're a product if you're an evangelical don't assume I don't understand the differences if I if I believed in Catholic ecclesiology what would I be Catholic. Catholic. Okay. I make that point to say this. What the Pope is currently demonstrating should grieve the heart of any believer. Beyond, I want to win this argument, or I even think my side of the argument is the right one. Because when someone who is the face of our, of our faith to millions, if not billions of people on this planet, behaves in this way, this isn't helping any cause. This this isn't this isn't helping Protestants win a five hundred year old argument with with the papacy. This is causing people to say, "I don't, I'm not interested in what you guys are selling. I'm out." This isn't doing us any good as believers, regardless of where we're at in this centuries long debate. 
And that I'm I am offended, appalled, and grieved all at the same time watching this. And today's response from the Pope almost it literally took took my breath away reading it because it's like, and I think I used this analogy on the TV show. It's like he's it's like he's on purpose just checking boxes of every one-dimensional Protestant caricature of the papacy now. He's just like he's just like checking off stereotypes now. So it's it's I don't even know what to say to it. You know, at least there are some people on the other side. It, this is nine eleven, uh, and I, I don't know the name. I would cite him if I could, but there is a. Uh, I mean, there's substantial pushback from some uh, bishops, and one of them used the occasion of nine eleven to say, "What's going on right now is the church's." 9/11. In some respects, there's it's a defining moment. Yes, where 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 evil has what he's basically saying. If he's drawing that analogy, that's why I bring it here. Is and, he is yeah. literally saying evil has revealed itself and is on your doorstep now. Yeah. Now Sean Connery says, "What are you? Prepared? What are you prepared to do about it?" Correct. That, that's that is. I mean, and and when he says the evil is on your doorstep, I think it's pretty obvious where what what he's saying is the evil. He's talking about the leadership of the church, basically, is what he is saying. Yes. Right? Yes. Aaron, what stood out to you? (laughs) That's a terrible... (laughs) Aaron's like, oh, we talked about some stuff. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. right? right, So, let's segue away from 9-11 remembrances and uh, evil on the doorstep. Aaron, what what, what tickled your fancy today? nothing (laughs) no um we tried to get inside the mind of donald trump again you'll never guess what happened next yeah i know i did it again i'm i do it sometimes it's your turn i gotta stop it's your turn i need to stop i gotta stop (laughs) see i know you come i wish i knew you come in here i I gotta put bread on the table i got a show to do gotta talk i feel like i'm the political version of train spotting i just i know i need to stop i can't (laughs) And I know I'm going to be strung out by the next scene all over again. And I know how destructive and terrible it is. I can't, I can't stop. You're over there nodding your head because you get it. Oh, yeah. It just wasn't my day, man. It wasn't my day. Well, if you want to watch uh, today's CRTV show and see me have a bad day and Todd have a bad day, CRTV.com is where you can go to watch today's show. Uh, promo code DACE is how you can get a discounted subscription to CRTV. And that won't just give you access to our lamentation, but also the great one, Mark Levin, Michelle Malk, and the entire team here at CRTV each and every day. CRTV.com, promo code DACE. Okay. Are we good? Yes. All right, here we go again. Three, two, and one. All right, on with today's podcast. Normally on a Tuesday here on Westwood One, it is a Pop Culture Tuesday where we take a look at the intersection between pop culture and conservatism, but we have a special guest today, so we will preempt that for this week uh, because uh, he's a good friend and somebody that right now is uh, leading one of the most important organizations uh, in our movement. Michael Ferris is here with us from Alliance Defending Freedom, and it's good to have you on the podcast, brother. How are you? I am great, Steve. Always a pleasure to be with you. 
You are coming to uh, Des Moines uh, this week. Yeah, you and I are going to be speaking at the same event on Friday, the Family Leadership Summit, and uh, we'll get a little preview of of what you plan on addressing when you're here on Friday in, in a few moments. But I thought before we got there, we might uh, take a few philosophical detours and get your take on uh, several different things that are happening in the culture and that you guys are facing right now in the courts, if you don't mind. And I want to start with... Um, today being the uh, 17th remembrance of 9-11 and what this day means to you, where you were and what you were doing when you saw what happened happen. And, and, and what lessons do you think the country has learned since then and still has yet to learn, Michael? Well, that's a really interesting and important question. Um, I was um, the president of Patrick Henry College at the time, and I was on campus when I first heard about it. We had a, an accreditation site team there that I was giving a tour to of the campus when I first got the information. Um, shortly after we, we briefed the students and everybody started being glued to the TV, I came home and spent the rest of the day with my family. And I remember my three-year-old son uh, talking about Osama bin Laden. I mean, it's just a remarkable thing for a three-year-old to uh, to know. And uh, it was just, uh, it was a chilling moment. It was uh, a moment uh, that... Uh, um, I'll never forget for lots of reasons. Uh, one of the one of the scenes that I remember more than anything else was that I think it was the day after uh, there was a television interview uh, with um, the people on the street kind of interviews, and there was a guy that they were interviewing who had all the looks of the goth culture, mm-hmm. uh, uh, piercings, tattoos. Just, he looked goth from beginning to end, and and so. Um, I thought, you know, what's this guy going to say? You know, uh, and he was extremely patriotic and just gave a really interesting response. And I thought, you know, if that's the way that um, people who, uh, from appearances, don't have anything to do with the traditional American values, if that's the way they think, people are reachable. And that uh, when, when, when America's attacked at, at its moment, People that we think are beyond our reach are not beyond our reach. They, they, people love this country, and that uh, love runs deep and wide. And I'll never forget that moment. And it just really made me hopeful that we could reach people that we normally think we couldn't reach. Hmm. I remember I was uh, early in my sports talk radio career. I was actually in the shower getting ready to go into the office, and uh, uh, Amy was out in the family room with uh, with Anna, who was seven months old at the time, who's now a high school senior. And um, she's like, wow. She was watching the Today Show live. And she's like, wow. You know, total tragedy happened in New York. You know, and we just kind of thought it was a faraway place from Des Moines. And um, it, it, you obviously grieved for the people that were involved, but you just thought it was a random accident, right? Freak accident. And by the time I get out of the shower, I get dressed. I'm about to, I'm in the in, in the bedroom getting ready to walk out the door. She comes in and says, there's another one. And when the, when it happens a second time, that's when you know it wasn't an accident. And I remember... You know, you're driving to work and I'm thinking, is this what it was like, you know, for our, our parents and grandparents on Pearl Harbor? Is this going to be a defining moment? Um, 
what's the world going to be like? You know, and I was really in the very early exploration phase of my faith. And um, when I look back on it now, I, I think of the things, the lessons that I thought we were going to learn from it. And Michael, I honestly don't believe we learned any of those lessons. I think that, you know, we, we treat every American as a potential criminal. I mean, old ladies have got to remove their, you know, hip replacements so that we don't, you know, racially profile anybody. So everybody's treated like a criminal every time we go to an airport. Um, I think we are even more balkanized culturally than we were then coming out of a very divisive election decided by 527 hanging chads. Uh, I, I, I think we've learned all the wrong lessons. Uh, we, we continue to think we can make Mosul great again. We're on our, I think I've lost track at 47th attempt to, you know, bring freedom, peace, prosperity, and democracy to the Middle East. Um, I, I don't know that we learned any of the right lessons from it. Talk me out of that. I, I can't because I, I fundamentally agree with you. Um, the, I, I think we squandered an opportunity that we could have. It was a teachable moment for America. Um, but instead, we, um, you know, with the understandable desire to try to, you know, regularize people's thinking and make people not be afraid, I get that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we needed to understand that we were in a a battle of of ideas and that people were attacking us because they don't like freedom and because we do um and because we've been afraid of our shadows and afraid of being uh, seen as as diminishing somebody's religious faith we haven't been willing to to speak the truth about a lot of these issues and just so many opportunities were squandered there i wonder and maybe it's unfair because, you know, I wondered if in 1958, 17 years after Pearl Harbor, did things just seem as nonchalant as they do now? But, you know, that generation went right from facing the tyranny of Nazism and fascism to the tyranny of communism. You know, they were in the midst of, you know, red scares and, uh, you know, bomb drills and bomb shelters of the 50s. And so they never really were even in the Pax Romana Eisenhower years, uh, were, were never, leave it to beaver time, were never really given the luxury of, of complete and total complacency because, you know, they had Khrushchev shaking a, his fist and his shoe at them on their, on their you know, small black and white television screens there every night when they got home from work. So I, I wonder... If, if they weren't because of they kind of rolled from one existential conflict into the other, that that level of complacency just wasn't an option for them. Well, I uh, don't remember Pearl Harbor, but I do remember 1958. Uh, I was uh, in elementary school. I was seven years old, and I started reading the newspaper every day when I was six. So I was, I was politically uh, informed at seven years old. I know I was a weird, weird freak, but that's that's the reality. And I lived in Kennewick, Washington, which is a bedroom community for Hanford Nuclear Project, where they built the uh, 
the bomb that was dropped on Nagasaki. And so we considered ourselves a prime target and we had air raid drills and I had to run home from school uh, in the middle of all that. So the idea that America had enemies in the world and that we needed to be alert to those enemies was front and center of my mind. I remember watching Khrushchev on television. I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, every time our, our fire siren went off, um, that was the signal, uh, if it kept going, for an air raid. And we were prepared for that. And unfortunately, I lived near a fire station that had a malfunctioning fire signal. It went off and stayed in the stuck position, the signal and air raid, about every three days. And so, um, you know, I was a, a petrified little child whenever a fire whistle went off. But um, it, it was a time where America was united about being American and that that we knew our enemies were our enemies and we didn't have any hesitation of fighting them. Hmm. Americans united about being Americans. I think what's fascinating, and we talked about this on my CRTV show yesterday, is, you know, leftists had, in, for most of my lifetime, and much of your professional political career, have used postmodernism like a contagion. Uh, like a firebombing technique in a culture war, meaning something you unleash like a chemical or biological agent in order to so destabilize your opposition, um, so deconstruct them that it makes it easier to take them on later on when you go um, hat on a hat, ground troop style. And, and, and we've had this time of nihilism where... Um, they keep trying to make, you know, something simple. You know, you know my background, I didn't grow up in a good home and, and I didn't grow up in a church home. And Superman was kind of my masculine hero growing up. You know, uh, the secular Messiah who did things altruistically just because he believed in truth, justice in the American way. And I can still remember five-year-old Stevie sitting there at the River Hills Theater in downtown Des Moines the first time that John Williams score came on and when Christopher Reeve first wore that suit and you did believe a man could fly. And now they kind of, he's kind of emo and he's not sure of himself and maybe he even kills people if he has to. And and because they're trying to, they, they the assumption in Hollywood is we can't identify with that level of altruism anymore and so instead we keep making batman movies because he's damaged and the anti-hero and he's on the edge and so we as a culture much more identify with that the video games now the guy who steals the car is the hero no, you're not not the cop who chases him down, right? So we went through this time period of nihilism, and now you can sort of sense that the same leftists that unleashed postmodernism have have considered they have enough of an advantage now that they're going to transition from postmodernism to evangelism. And I watched Van Jones on CNN the other night talk about America needs hope and renewal. That's that's our language. I, I watched the Colin Kaepernick Nike ad and take out the fact it's Colin Kaepernick saying it and, and give the same script to Tim Tebow. You wouldn't have to change a word. He says, gamble on greatness. It's a meritocracy. Uh, you know, sacrifice yourself for beliefs greater than your own material gain. I mean, that's that's at the heart of, of, of part of the Christian message right there. And I'm I'm watching that 
now we have we really do have two Americas. I don't think we're a polarized country. I think we're a balkanized one. We're a Yugoslavia. There are two totally different ver- variations of what truth means, of what justice means, of what the flag stands for, of what these cultural institutions are about. My guess is you fight this out every single day in the courts because that's the other side's primary offensive weapon is to have the the judges imposed by fiat what they can't get done at the ballot box. I think that's probably the biggest change you've seen during the course of your life, isn't it? Indeed. Uh, I, I, I see the evangelism that you're talking about, and I, I wouldn't even call them liberals anymore. There's no semblance to li- liberalism historically has the root, root word of liberty. And they have openly jettisoned their belief in liberty. Um, Professor Michael Seidman at, at the Georgetown Law School wrote in the Washington Post uh, in response to a case I argued in the Supreme Court and, and the Janus case about unionism, forced unionism, that he believes that uh, free speech is no longer a good idea because it can be used as a weapon against progressive goals. So on the one hand, they're trying to be nice and, you know, have this nice veneer of hope and, uh, and uh, tr- trying to evangelize. On the other side, they are ready, willing, and able to coerce those who don't come along. And uh, California is forcing pro-life centers to mm-hmm. post pro-abortion notices on their uh, walls to uh, advertise for abortions and coercing Jack Phillips, our client in in, Cal- uh, in Colorado, to force him to do the wedding cake uh, for the same-sex couple, and so on. The, the number of times that they're willing to coerce you into their orthodoxy shows that we're, we're in for not just evangelism, but we're in for heresy trials if we refuse to convert. You're describing and using specific examples of something I've been trying to drive home to our audience the, the past couple of years, and that is there really aren't any more liberals anymore. What we used to call the old liberals are, have really become Republicans uh, because the old liberals wanted government to permit you to do things that God said were, was dumb and immoral. Today's leftists want government to command you to do those things. And if you don't, then you will be made to care. That's really what you're describing, is what the, the examples you just cited. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And, and uh, it doesn't surprise me uh, that the life I'm living is something that you've been talking about for a while, because you're, you know, you're a good observer, and we think a lot alike. But it's real. It's it's not a, an imagination. It's it's uh, we have cases in Europe right now where they're forcing doctors, as a condition of practicing medicine, to participate in abortion. America's just. A, a couple of steps behind that at most we are uh, the the bill that was um, pulled back at the last minute in california um was on the edge of of banning not the bible entirely but certain portions of of what the bible teaches certainly if you pulled some passages out and put it in a book you your book would be banned under the regime that California came so close to adopting. And, I th- and they say they're coming back, so they, I think they're just trying to create some uh, space between the legal victory that we want against their abortion law and and, and their, their current bill. They're trying to re- fix a few things, or else we'll take them out in court again. But the the coercion is in place, because people who believe in utopias that are not God-centered always ended up being coercive. Uh, socialism, the old socialism was coercive and hated God. The new socialism that we're seeing in the United States is atheistic and hates God and hates freedom. That is, I think that also speaks to an observation I've made, and maybe you are living it out, and that is 
and your organization would be on the front lines of this there at at, uh, at ADF. The what's happening in our country, and you mentioned Europe. You know, the left, the leftists waited until the church essentially abrogated its place of prominence in European culture. And then they push their advantage. If you go, I think right now, about 2% of the population in Western Europe is evangelical, for example. Um, So many old Catholic churches of Western Europe are mosques now or places where, you know, they have uh, swap meets. And and then when so when the church has abrogated its its place of primacy in the year in the Western European culture, that's when they moved in and pressed their advantage. What's happening here is while the 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 church doesn't have the place of primacy in American culture it used to have, it still is a primary force in American culture. Uh, even if let's let's take the George Barna numbers for example. And he says his latest number is about 9% of American Christians have a basic biblical worldview. So let's say that's 9% of American Christians. Now, 72% of Americans claim they're Christians. We know that number is not true. Okay. But of that, but 70, 72% of 350 million people, and then you narrow it down to another 9 million. All right. So you're still talking about millions of people that take this stuff very seriously. And they're not just in one or two states, but they live all over the country. And so when the leftists, the leftists are attempting to push their advantage in our country at the same rate and pace they did in Europe, but they're running into resistance that was already gone in Europe. And I think this is creating so much of the cultural friction today. There was no bake the cake bigot, for example, in, in France, because all the people that pretty much would say no were already gone before this issue even arose. And I think that's where a lot of the friction is, is happening in our culture, is while the church is diminished in its capacity, it has not fully abrogated its place of influence in the culture, and there's still a lot of us more than they thought. I, I agree with you. Uh, one thing, one of the tactics of the left that's been extraordinarily successful and has given them the, the uh, um, chutzpah to try, uh, try to go really fast right now is they have uh, used the education system of our country so effectively in turning Christian kids into people who don't have a biblical worldview. Even if they profess to so believe in Jesus, they have so thoroughly taken away from them the, their intellectual and spiritual heritage on what they think and believe that in, they've either neutralized them or converted a number of them to be uh, pragmatically on the left side on, on these issues. Uh, I've been teaching, or I used to, I stopped doing what I took the ADF job a year and a half ago, but I taught constitutional law to high school kids who were being homeschooled for 25, 30 years. And 25, 30 years ago, I would get one kid every once in a while that either believed in that same-sex marriage should be allowed or was questioning the question mm-hmm. that issue. By the time I was done, and these are among you know the most conservative, one of the most conservative segments in our society, a third of the kids would be sympathetic to same-sex marriage in, in either at a questioning stage or had actually converted uh, in homeschool constitutional law classes. So if that's going on in, in that world, just think of what is going on among the kids that are in the public schools. It's, it's, it's dramatically worse. So we have given up um, a lot of our cultural advantage by allowing our kids to be taught in a system and in a philosophy 
that is utterly contrary to what, what their parents believe. Well, in a strange way, um, this this book of Lamentations com- conversation we're having is has convinced me that the topic I'm going to do on Friday when I speak is right. And there's going to be numerous pastors in the audience. And I'm going to do a discussion on the one sermon I think every pastor in this room needs to do. And it is a rightful understanding and placing of, of what Romans 13 really means. Honor to those whom honor is due. And the same Paul that writes those words is later beheaded because um, why? He did honor the king, but he did not honor the king in the way that, uh, that Nero wanted to be honored. Um, because the Caesar's idea of honor was allegiance, not being a good citizen, obeying the laws, paying your taxes, but to worship the state as God, to change your personal value system and your moral ethics to what the state says as opposed to what God says. And I think this is something, as the Kim Davis affair, and I won't mention his name, but a good friend of mine, I think he's one of the best apologists of this era, and he has a fantastic radio ministry. Him and I got into an argument during the Kim Davis affair because he thought she should have just resigned. And I said, why? She was upholding her oath. We've lost this idea of what's the chain of command here. So help me Supreme Court ruling. So help me will of the people. So help me the polls. So help me lesser of two evils. Well, that oath says, so help me God. And um, I think we need to start reassessing what terms like activist judges mean. You know, I, I think we'd like to find some judges that have decided they're not going to, you know, originally construct Roe v. Wade anymore, for example, because it's wicked and it's evil. You know, I mean, we hung We hung a judge at Nuremberg who tried to make the case. He was just following the Nazi law as it was currently constructed. They did a movie about him and Burt Lancaster played the character in Judgment at Nuremberg. We hung that guy. Because we told him, you knew there was a higher law than what the state said. And I think we have, we have got it, we've got to position and condition our people. And I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on this as someone who's fighting this in courtrooms. But our, our, our people need to understand. You know, like when I hear you say they're forcing doctors, they should, the doctors should say No. No Christian, no, no church father, no Christian of, leader of any repute would have said, you know, I guess I just got to do what Caesar says because he's got the guns and, you know, I, I, he's in charge. I mean, we, we must, we obey God and not man. We render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. And then we, but then we render under God that which is God. When, when Caesar is saying disobey God, he is claiming jurisdiction that doesn't belong to him. We need to, we, our pastors need to be teaching our people that, you know, the, most of the civil rights movement was sparked by a 29-year-old Baptist seamstress who got on a bus one day and simply said the word no. No, I'm not going to do this anymore. No. We got to learn the word no, Michael. No. We have to start telling the state no. I I agree. uh, As long as we're on Romans uh, and correct theology there, and I I agree with everything you've said on on that point, is that when, when we're told in the word that we're to obey the authority, we have to understand in this country the authority is the Constitution of the United States, not the officials. And, and, and so when the officials are disobeying the authority, 
the Constitution. And they are the ones that are wrong. Christians are not doing the wrong thing. Christians are not being disobedient to fight back against the authority, to take them to court and say, no. When Kelvin Cochran, one of our clients in, in Atlanta, was fired from uh, his job as the fire chief of Atlanta after being appointed by Obama to the top position in the country as the chief fire official in America, and he was fired because he wrote a book that had a couple of paragraphs about the Christian view of marriage mm-hmm. for his church group and he you know he's fighting back and that's what we need to do we need to say no you and kelvin cochran is not disobeying the authorities there's a famous pastor in california that i have taken on on this point because he says that the american revolution was ungodly because we we rebelled against the authorities no we didn't the authorities under the british constitution said that America was a self-governing series of colonies. That The Parliament in England couldn't pass laws for us. That wasn't contrary to the British Constitution. And so we have gotten this wrong in so many counts. The authority that Americans, Christians, have obedience to is the Constitution of the United States. And the good news is the Constitution was written at a time where a biblical worldview prevailed. And, and so... There's no dissonance mm-hmm. between the Constitution as written and a biblical worldview. But if there was, our duty would be to the Word of God. Hmm. So what are you going to be talking about when you come here on Friday for the Family Leadership Summit? Well, I'm going to talk about how I think we can win all this. Uh, I'm going to talk about the the left and and how they are trying to turn this into a coercive utopia and how free speech in particular, they've taken aim at that. And that gives us an opening to win and to convince people who are just simply confused by the rhetoric of the left. and the, But they still at the heart, like that, that goth kid that I referred to on 9-11, back original, the original 9-11, that people still love freedom. And the idea that we're jettisoning freedom of speech doesn't sit right with the vast majority of Americans. And I think we have an opportunity to win a lot of people back to our viewpoint by faithfully presenting the opportunity to fight and win. Michael Ferris, Alliance Defending Freedom. He's going to be joining us here in uh, Des Moines on Friday at the Family Leadership Summit, another event that I'll be speaking at as well. Good to talk to you, my friend. I look forward to seeing you on Friday, okay? Thanks, Steve. God bless you. Same to you. God bless as well. Well, let us know what you think about what we think. Steve at stevedace.com is the email address. If you want to drop us a line, you can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Steve Dace Show. Last name is spelled D-E-A-C-E. If you have time today, please click that subscribe button there on iTunes and Stitcher. Leave us a good review if you like our show and have time for that. Thank you to all of you that have done both of those things already. Until tomorrow, John 317. This is Steve Dace. I like it, you.